From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. We are starting the show today talking about some changes, hopefully, coming to BC's healthcare system. And this is in the shape of physician assistance, something many doctors have been calling for. One in particular, Kevin McLeod, an internal medicine specialist at Lionsgate Hospital. And Kevin McLeod is joining us on the line now. Dr. McLeod, thank you so much for taking the time today. Well, Jill, thanks for, thanks for doing this. I think even the last time we talked and you were on the show, it was about what a difference it would be, it would make if physician assistants were allowed in BC. The Ministry of Health has now put out some information today uh, saying that they are at least looking at going down that road. What is your response to that? Uh, well, Jill, honestly, I was I was really excited to see this. I, I didn't know until your producer reached out to me to, to say, could we chat today that, that this press release had just come out. Um, it, it looks like the, the government or the Ministry of Health has, has gone to the BC College of Physicians and has very specifically asked to um, get get physician assistants licensed in British Columbia. And it was kind of about time, like we've been calling for this for years and, and every other province um, has has a way to license physician assistance. It does look like from their press release, they're going to start by utilizing physician assistance in the emergency departments. Um, but that's so helpful, right? I mean, I was in emergency this whole past weekend working and it was chaotic and busy and people lined up down hallways and, you know, we, we don't have enough staff. So getting anybody who's on the sidelines, like physician assistants who live here in BC but just can't work here, into the system and working is very, very helpful. What exactly does a physician, what does a physician assistant do? Well, physician assistant, you can sort of imagine is like an extender to what the physician will do. So they're not practicing independently. It's different than a nurse practitioner, um, you know, but they may be working alongside that physician to do certain tasks. So, you know, think of, um, we have a lot of physicians now who do operating room assists. So the orthopedic surgeon is replacing somebody's hip, but there's another doctor in there who's helping do some of the sutures, is following the direction of that primary treating doctor or the orthopedic surgeon, well, we use up a physician to have in that assistant role. Here's an assistant who's specifically trained to do that task that can come in and free up the second physician to do other work in the community emergency or wherever it is. In an emergency department, you can imagine they might be able to help with, you know, sutures or assessing certain aspects of patient care, following up certain tests. I mean, how many of us have been in an emergency department and we know we're sitting there waiting for hours? You know, if there's somebody else that that physician can, can you know, delegate some of those tasks to, that's particularly helpful um, and does offload that physician who's, you know, I can tell you from experience, often just like working as much as they can. They can't squeeze that extra minute or two of tasks into that hour. What kind of schooling or experience does someone have to have then to be a physician assistant? Well, it's, it's different schooling than medical school. It's um, still a multi-year program degree. My understanding is that there's three schools in Canada, not one in British Columbia, that are training physician assistants. And then there's, you know, there's hundreds of schools around the world. They're they're utilized in in most countries. Uh, we've been a little bit slow to adopt it in Canada, um, but it's it's very specific training to do 
do tasks that, you know, that, that specialist or that family doc doesn't need to necessarily do themselves. So it frees them up for more, more of the complicated work. I spend hours a day doing things that, you know, I don't need to do. There's just not somebody else that can do it. And then you pay a whole bunch of tax dollars to a guy like me at a specialist rate doing things that don't need to be done by a specialist, right? I could delegate things off. And it, it also then really frees up my time to shorten down a waiting list or, you know, see those more complicated patients or problems. And, and that has a huge impact on the healthcare system. The the province has said in putting out this information today that there's approximately, and you touched on this, 30 to 50 physician assistants currently living in BC. So living here, but not able to practice right now as physis- physician assistants. So this is going to go, as you mentioned, to the College of Physicians and Surgeons. Uh, they're going, they've posted the, the proposed bylaw changes. It gets public consultation and feedback for a week, and then it will be up to the college to approve this. Uh, are you confident that that this will go ahead and that the college will see that this is something that is very much needed in BC's healthcare system? I'm confident. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, the college's mandate is to protect the public and, you know, they do a good job at that. The, the big risk to the public right now is that people can't access a system because there's not enough people that are working in the system or there's vacancies that we just can't fill. So, you know, your listeners will hear, well, 25 to 50 people, that's tiny. That that number will grow. You can imagine if somebody did physician assistant training in Ontario and maybe, you know, their partner had to move to BC for work or they had to move back here for family reasons or something else. There's people that may move to our province even though they can't practice their profession for other reasons when when they're going to be licensable in bc you may see a whole bunch of british columbians who are living in other provinces or other places around the world decide that they want to come back here um you know it's it's a beautiful place to be and of course we have incredibly cheap housing here and all these things but um but no i mean you will you will um hopefully see more people come back and and then you know the, the long-term goal i would love to see get a get a physician assistant school going here right um you know there's there's so many things we can do over the long term that actually help improve the healthcare system that don't have to cost a ton of money but paying doctors more and more isn't solving the problem we need more people on the front lines and and all those people on the front lines do not have to be physicians it can be other disciplines that really help right and and kevin uh, one other question looking at this like you said there are other provinces are already um have physician assistants working there and have had that for quite quite some time is there any issue with with patient kind of patient confidence that if somebody goes to the doctor they want to see the doctor and make sure it's the doctor who who is doing the exam or doing it taking the the time to give them uh, to do the care for whatever reason they're there is there any issue with the confidence of well the doctor Doctor's done now, and now you. Uh, the rest of this is going to be done by the the physician assistant. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, you know, hopefully the doctor's got decent communication skills, and admittedly, we don't all. Um, but you know, they they need to really explain to the patient what's going to happen, right? So, good example, like if I see somebody for heart failure and get them started on some medications and other things, I might say to them, you know, what in a month, like we're going to have another ultrasound. 
I am totally happy to talk about that, but, you know, my colleague's going to phone you or they're going to see you. They're going to go over things. Just make sure it's working. See what your blood pressure's at. You know, and if if there's any red flags, they're going to bring me in and we're going to talk about that as well, right? So it's how you communicate it to the patient. And because what happens for a lot of patients now is it's, it's not that you know, somebody else is seeing them, it's that nobody's seeing them. And, and Jill, you'd be surprised. Like, if you sat in my waiting room for a day, the number of people who come in here who don't have appointments, who have nowhere else to go, um, it's, it's really high, right? So there has to be some mechanism that we can offload some of that because, you know, those of us working really hard, they're just, we can't add any more people to, you know, any more patients to the mix without more help. Right. And how are things going with you as far as I know you, you've talked about this very openly uh, with paperwork, the long hours and not, not being able to to get to everybody uh, who uh, who even has appointments, let alone people who are showing up with without appointments, just hoping to be seen. Well, I think that's the problem, right? Like there, there's such a backlog. So, you know, I, I, I keep desperately trying to get a waiting list down, but it seems to grow faster than then I can get it down. Um, and, and then I know there's people with serious problems who are waiting. So if, if I see a referral and think, oh, you know, I know what this person has or they're on the wrong medication or this is really going to hurt them and I don't have time to get to that for a few weeks, you know, it's distressing, right? Um, so that, is, yeah, I mean, it's, the short answer is it's very busy and it's, it's seeming to only get busier and busier um, as our population grows, as we get older. And so hopefully this change with physician assistance, it's a small part of the puzzle. It's not going to fix everything, but, but um, you know, hopefully it at least takes a little bit of the load off. And it's nice to actually see something positive for a change in, in what's happening in the healthcare system. It is indeed. Dr. Kevin McLeod, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you, as always, for taking the time. Jill, thank you. It is Wednesday afternoon, and that means it's time for us to check in with Travel Best Bets president and founder, Claire Newell. Claire, good afternoon to you. Oh, good afternoon, Jill. Lots of travel news this week, not the least of which that Air Canada has ordered 18 of those gorgeous new Dreamliner aircraft. That is amazing. I recently flew Air Canada and there was a technical issue and I feel like they brought a plane out of retirement. It was one of those super old planes that didn't even have a premium economy section. And then the the entertainment systems were the old ones that actually still had the phone that disconnected on the curly cord. I didn't even think they were still using those planes. But Okay, but... The- the one good thing about that, Jill, is, is that Air Canada had a big enough fleet to actually get an aircraft yes. to fly you, and hopefully you weren't too delayed. But these 18 Boeing 787, um, they're the Dash 10 version Dreamliners. They are so gorgeous. Um, they've actually not only got those 18, they've got an option for another dozen, and they're due for delivery late of 2025. But this order is just part of their fleet renewal. And just to kind of knock out those planes that you, you just flew, um, they have just so much better fuel efficiency. And when you get off of a Dreamliner, uh, it's you feel so much better. The way that they've got the um, the air pressure controlled and the way that the, the lighting works, it's just incredible. You do feel a lot better. So it'll they'll replace those older, less efficient wide-body planes um, that are currently in Air Canada's fleet. So probably 
probably not too long before people won't be flying the ones you just flew on. <laughs> All right. And again, I didn't I mean, didn't mean to sound completely uh, just that I was complaining because you're right. It would have been far <laughs> worse had the flight been canceled. The delay I could deal with. It still got me yeah. from from A to B. Uh, all good. But that that's great that they've ordered those. Uh, let's talk yeah. as well. Uh, WestJet announcing uh, some new, Is this a new service? Yeah, so it's not really new, uh, but it's we, the the last time it flew was back in 2017. So this is um, WestJet has announced service between Victoria and Las Vegas. So basically reintroducing the airline's first trans border connection from the island. Um, again, the first time they did this was way back, 2017. So beginning on February 1st of next year, they're going to be operating nonstop service between Victoria and Las Vegas twice a week. It'll be on those popular days of the week, Thursdays and Sundays. So you can do the three nights over the weekend, or you can do the uh, Sunday to Thursday if you can go midweek for the four-night duration. Um, now, I do know that you were just in Europe, and I wanted to mention something that was uh, that came out just yesterday for anyone who's planning on a European trip next year. A lot of people kind of were waiting to see if they were going to be affected by the new entry and exit system. They call it the EES system. It's where um, you have to get some authorization and pay before you go. It's an online system. It was supposed to come into play uh, kind of mid-2024, so just middle of next year. That's been pushed back again. Like, I think it might be like the 10th time. Um, so now it's going to take effect, they say, May of 2025. So anyone planning to, to head to Europe next year, you will not be affected by this new entry and exit system. You can just go as you normally would have ever traveled to Europe. All right. So that's uh, some good news, I think, uh, for people uh, doing that. Uh, let's take yeah. a look as well at the, the pilot shortage. And I know this has been something you have talked about so much and uh, looking to get more people trained as pilots. Yeah. And only a month ago, we talked about Flare starting their Flare cadet program so that within 18 months, people will be able to, if they get uh, accepted to the program, that they could could be in kind of the the next seat to the captain within 18 months. Now Air Transat, so they're not going to be the, the last of these airlines to do this, but Air Transat's launched their own training academy for aspiring pilots. They're calling it the Accession Academy. Um, so if anyone's interested, the training is going to start in February of 2024. You know, it's going to be rigorous, like the, the Flare program that I mentioned uh, a couple of weeks ago. But once that training is complete, they will have uh, – Air Transat fully certified second in command job. So it's really great if, if clearly pilots are uh, in desperado need here in Canada and all around the world. So this is, again, another program that's out there if people are keen. Maybe somebody who uh, who's always wanted to be a pilot but just hadn't actually taken the plunge to do it. This is the time. Yeah, and I think that they're they're also in like the Flare program. They're going to be offering some really good scholarships and bursaries and financial assistance because it is a big nut. Like I think it's about one hundred and fifty thousand dollars to do it. Super intensive training, um, but once you are a pilot, it's a great career. So yeah, just kind of uh, something to think about if you're you know trying to decide on what career you want to do or you're thinking that you might want to change careers. This <laughs> this is definitely the time. Lots of opportunities there. Uh, people love, I think, to rank, whether officially or just in talking to other people, airports. Uh, and you certainly remember the airports that you get through efficiently and and they're clean and have services. But this is an official um, look, a study looking at Canadian airports. 
Yeah, this was done by J.D. Power. And so they surveyed uh, over 27,000 people that were traveling through at least one U.S. or Canadian airport between August 2022 and July of 2023. Um, They ranked it on all sorts of factors, which I think are important. So terminal facilities, the airport arrival and departure, baggage claims, security check, um, check in uh, baggage, and then food, beverage, and retail. And what was so sad is that our Canadian airports didn't fare that well. In fact, um, Toronto Pearson, I guess they've had so much trouble with luggage and all delays and everything, came second from the bottom Ooh. in the category of the largest airport. So that was airports that see 33 million passengers or more per year. Montreal came in third from the bottom in the next category, which is passenger traffic between that 10 and 33 million. Our Western Canadian airports ranked a little bit better in customer satisfaction. Calgary was 10th on the list and Vancouver 17th. So obviously some work to be done, uh, but I love our Canadian airports. I love YVR, I have to tell you. So (laughs) I'm just, um, you know, I I guess it's what it is is just a little bit of... um, you know, constructive criticism that can go yes. and make all these airports better. <laughs> Room for improvement. There there you go. Um, and there is an airline that's doing some um, improvement because it's one of the next things I wanted to chat about, which was Shanghai's airport, which is one of the busiest airports in the world. They have a new law in Singapore that's going to allow for passport-free travel starting the first half of next year, so really soon. And instead of passports, they're going to convert it all over to biometric sensors that are going to be used for departing passengers. And they're doing it for so many reasons, um, but they want like seamless and convenient processing, uh, accommodating the uh, the increasing traveler volume, which is only going up. Um, and also strengthening their border protection. So it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out. And I think that they're not going to be the only, they might be the first, Hmm. but they're not going to be the only that eventually moves over to biometric um, screening. So how how would that work then? Because you would still need your passport, wouldn't you, to leave and to travel. But then you don't, once if you went to the airport in Singapore, then you just don't need to bring it out of your travel documents. You're going through and doing biometrics instead? Yes, that's what they did here. They've done some testing, both WestJet and Air Canada, and um, it, you you have the choice of doing this. So if you're doing it, you don't have to pull it pull it out. You would download um, through through an app your your face, and then when you get there, they would screen your face, and then you would continue on. So it'll it's not going to be absolutely necessary if you if you choose not to do biometric, you can go through the regular documentation. This will just make it way faster. Hmm. All right. Interesting. And it'll be interesting to see, like you said, uh, if other airports follow along and do that as well. Uh, Let's talk a little bit as well. Porter Airlines. People maybe are familiar with Porter Airlines also launching a new service. Yeah. Again, it's for the island. Um, Lucky those who live in Victoria. This will just make it seamless service between Toronto and Victoria and a lot more affordable. So their Porter will start. They actually started on September the 20th. And a lot of people don't know that this is even a possibility. It's going to be aboard those brand new 130-seater Embraers. We've told you that uh, Porter has taken um, taken into their fleet. They're two by two configuration, so there's no middle seat, which is really awesome. And um, Wi-Fi also available on board, so lots of people love that. Plus, complimentary beer and wine. 
All right. Uh, Let's uh, look at one other story I think uh, we have time for before we get to the deals. I found this really interesting because people obviously are getting back uh, into traveling. Well, two more stories. Uh, European tourism, like we touched on, and also Club Med having a really great 2023 yeah, so um, European tourism, the numbers have come in for the first half of 2023, and it, it basically reached a decade high, like even pre-pandemic, one point, oh, well, almost 1.2 billion night stays. It's a rise of um, 22.5% for international tourist night stays. So that's an incredible number. Um, almost all all except uh, Hungary, all EU nations saw a boost in overnight stays. And what led the, the growth rates were three in particular, Cyprus, Malta, and Slovakia, which is really great. Um, Club Med, the, what we're talking about there is that they had a record-breaking first half of 2023. Their numbers just came in, a 32% increase in business volume compared to the same period last year. So um, it's it's not surprising. Everyone is, you know, desperado to travel. And the un- unfortunate thing is it's expensive, <laughs> really expensive. You just came back from Europe. You get it. Um, but it's it's great to see that people are prioritizing it and um, being grateful for, for the trips that they're able to take. But the demand is certainly still out there. We'll have to wait and see how the last half of 2023 is affected by inflation and and, you know, obviously a lot of people are seeing the mortgage rates go up and things like that. It's, it's definitely going to have to have an effect. But at least for the first half of this year, um, people are traveling and they're traveling in huge numbers. All right. So many stories to get to. But I also want to make sure we get to the deals. So what deals do you have for us today? Well, I found um, a really big window for Vegas and it's a great deal. November the 6th through until February 5th. Now, of course, this is not going to be over long weekends. It's not going to be over the Christmas and New Year's dates. But between November 6th and February 5th, there are some dates where airfare and three nights staying in a four-star hotel, 249 The taxes, mm-hmm. 243 uh, Sorry, 203 almost the same. Um, the Riviera Maya, some people have been waiting for um, that area to go on sale. And between November 16th and December 12th, airfare and seven nights in a four-and-a-half-star all-inclusive resort, 779 The taxes of 614 And then I know this is such a long way off. It's not leaving until September 20th of next year. But I thought this was such a deal for a beautiful itinerary. It's a seven-night Mediterranean cruise. Really focuses on Spain, France, and Italy. The itinerary is outstanding. You probably have it in front of you. But it's a seven-night cruise with a $100 US onboard credit per cabin, $789. Hmm. Taxes of 161 that works out to 950 tax included. So, but it's Barcelona, Valencia, Provence, Nice, Corsica, uh, Florence, Pisa, and Rome. So it's really great itinerary. Amazing, and I know uh, more details on the website. Claire, as always, great to chat with you, and we will talk to you again soon. Sounds good. Chat with you next week, Jill. The federal government is postponing some housing funding for two B.C. cities, saying there are concerns over development fees. The minister in charge, Sean Fraser, putting this on social media yesterday, he wrote, in light of a proposed development cost charge increase by Metro Van, I have postponed today's announcement of housing accelerator fund deals with two cities who are members of the Metro Van board. We're studying the impacts of this proposal, and I hope 
hope to have more to say soon. Well, what does this mean for funding for housing and for housing moving forward? John Stovell is the president and CEO of Reliance Properties and joins me on the line now. John, thank you so much for making some time today. Good afternoon. Are you surprised at all that the federal housing minister has put this out there that has pushed the pause button on this funding? I don't think so. Um, I think the senior government, certainly starting with the provincial government and now, although very belatedly, the federal government waking up to the real housing crisis we're in and and starting to utilize their their powers to um, compel uh, lower levels of government, whether it's metro metro levels or municipalities to to get out of the way of housing. And, um, you know, it, 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 you can imagine the, um, them being angry when they took all the political, uh, um, you know, cost of announcing uh, that GST would be, be removed from rental housing and the financial cost of the federal government only to turn around and see, you know, Metro um, uh, Vancouver, you know, in terms of uh, funding infrastructure and so on. Uh, clawing back in but by the analysis of UDI and others uh, about 69% of that cost saving that the federal government was looking to pass on to housing development you know that's being clawed back by municipalities so if we look at this particular fund, so the, the federal government is, is the Housing Accelerator Fund, a $4 billion program. The whole idea of that, though, was to support the development of more housing, of affordable housing, although the definition of that changes a little bit. So this was this was funding that had been promised or, or that Surrey and Burnaby thought they were going to be getting, and it's now been postponed. Uh, right. Do you think that there's any chance that Metro Vancouver might take another look at the development fees, or, or is this something that seems to be a done deal? No, I don't think it's a done deal. I, I, it has to, and it has to be approved by the provincial authority. Um, the, the, the Metro Vancouver fee increases have to be approved at the provincial level. And, and I think the, I have no doubt that the housing minister federally is talking to the provincial housing minister and likely the premier saying, you know, you guys can't, you, you know, at the provincial level nor the municipal level or metro level, can you be um, complaining about affordability and, and asking us for help and then at the same time taking whatever efforts we make, being the federal government in this case, and moving GST and grabbing all that back because they'll just conclude that that won't help stimulate the housing. You're just really transferring the cost going from one level of government to the other. And But nobody denies that we need infrastructure. We're in, in many cases, we're replacing old infrastructure, like, say, sewer water line replacements, which benefit the incumbent housing that's already been built and all those homeowners. And in other cases, we need an improved or increased infrastructure, um, and, and nobody's saying there shouldn't be any uh, any Metro DCC fees, but what they're really doing is because there's been so much political complaint about property taxes going up, um, they're just transferring and bearing all these costs into the cost of new development. And, you know, and looking at just here at some analysis that the industry had done in, in, for a Burnaby uh, multifamily unit in 2022, uh, January 2022, the Metro DCC was $2,200 per apartment. And according to, and then there was increases in, in, in um, after January 2022, and then now Metro is proposing three more increases. And so by January 1st, 2027, 
that those fees will have gone from $2,200 a unit to $13,780 a unit. So a 626% increase or 125% a year increase in these fees on the cost of a new, you know, a modest new condominium unit. Hmm. And, and, or a rental unit. Yeah. Right. And that, that's a huge increase when you look at that increase in a five-year period. Right. And so, you know, local governments have have, have delayed and, and postponed necessary infrastructure upgrades. And then when they do come, do and need to be done, they're reticent to um, equally deploy those costs among um, the entire population. And, you know, and they, they, they cynically bury it into the cost of new housing. And it's very inefficient because, you know, local government can borrow money very inexpensively. Um, they can borrow money. They have these plebiscites uh, on municipal elections and, and they can they can borrow money and they can spend the money on infrastructure and they can slowly recover it through property taxes over the subsequent decades. But instead, they're choosing to bury it into the cost of new housing. And then those homeowners have to go out and and borrow money at today's ridiculous interest rates for a homeowner. And and the cost to society of building that infrastructure by burying it in the cost of, of housing is, is the most expensive way to go. And it's also unfair. Like if you're replacing a 100-year-old sewer line running down a street um, and, and putting all the cost of replacing that sewer line into uh, new housing, all those existing homes and businesses that have had the benefit and will continue to have the benefit of that infrastructure are are getting that for free. Uh, Metro is talking about shifting, radically shifting the amount of money they recover for their capital projects from property taxes, shifting it to uh, to multifamily and, and new housing development. Uh, some of the members are at the Metro Vancouver board have, have been very supportive of this, though, saying it's something that should have been done a long time ago, that growth needs to start paying for growth uh, the, and are kind of defending it that way. But I know you've, you've talked about this as well. Do you think this will change then if this goes ahead? Is this going to change the types of housing that, that is built and, and what builders are going to be drawn to? Yeah, I think it can. I mean, if you look at if you look at the the, the DCC rates um, from Metro, like on a on in, in the Vancouver sub area, a single family lot um, is currently ten thousand, and a apartment is six thousand. So an apartment's about sixty percent. Um, but you know, if if if, if they, well, they're going to double the amount on a single family lot, but they're going to almost triple the amount. On a um, on a on a sink on a multi unit right so they're they're shifting the cost to the the more more of what's being built I mean more people are building multifamily than single family so they're shifting the cost to that and in, in effect they're they're shifting that cost away from single family homes um, and you know no there's no possibility that building single family homes is going to solve or help our housing crisis in any way. I mean, I think the really big picture here is that, and, and I've called for this in the last couple of days on social media, is that there's no coordination between all the different levels of government on trying to get us out of the housing crisis. And I think the way to do it, at least with respect to development fees, is to basically have the federal government put a national moratorium on any increases in federal provincial, municipal, or metro fees on, on any type of housing for the next three years to see if we can provide some relief and get some of these 
homes getting built. I mean, you know, you don't need to look too far to see that housing starts are declining rapidly now. Um, notwithstanding, efforts have been made by government to provide various incentives, like to move the GST, which is very welcome. Housing starts are declining rapidly. Um, the chief economist of the CIBC was on, on a webinar yesterday talking about, um, you know, when inflation peaks and interest rates start to go down, you know, house people are going to be looking for housing even more than they are now, but we're going to have a major supply issue because uh, it takes years to deliver housing and everybody's stopping housing right now because there's just too many costs coming from too many sectors, construction, interest rates, local government is now taking 25 to 30% of the cost of a new home and developers don't have to build. They won't build and can't build if they can't make a decent return and can't get financing. So I think we really need you know, we understand that the government can't control interest rates in the same way or construction costs, but they, they surely can control the, the costs they're charging to development. And, you know, we need a national uh, moratorium on any increases in fees on housing. Or, or, you know, there's a great saying, never waste a crisis. We, we have a crisis right now on, on housing. It's, it's nationally recognized now that we have a housing crisis and we need to get government to stop playing whack-a-mole with reducing fees over here, and then the other government over there just increases fees by the same amount. It's not going to get us anywhere. All right. John Stovell, we'll leave it there for today. But thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Well, you might know him best as half of the duo Cheech and Chong, the iconic comedy duo synonymous with cannabis use. But there is much more to Tommy Chong. He's also a best-selling author, an award-winning comedian, an activist, and a family man. He's on his way to Victoria. He's going to be speaking at the Grow Up Conference, which is running October 1st to the 3rd. And Tommy Chong joins me now to talk a little bit more about what he will be doing. Welcome to the show. Well, I have, uh, it's my, everything's my pleasure at this time of my life. So, <laughs> I know you, uh, you've spent some time in Vancouver, certainly spent some time in BC in the past. So uh, are you looking forward to coming back and coming to Victoria for this conference? Oh, I love, especially Victoria. I love Victoria. I love the history. Uh, but anyway, yeah, uh, Victoria, well, that was where the, everybody stopped in Victoria first, especially the Chinese. And because... America or the world was so racist back in the day. The China, they, they had, well, they had different graveyards for Chinese, you know, uh, uh, in Canada, and uh, because you know they, they, everybody, you know, the uh, Canada was so white, you know, English, Irish, Scottish, that uh, that you know, and you know, it was so racist. Mm-hmm. But they needed the Chinese because of the Chinese expertise in uh, explosive, explosives. And so that's how my grandfather got over here, because he, he came over to work on the railroad. And, uh, and so the history, uh, the history of the Chinese really starts because that's where the boat stopped in, in Victoria. You know, and that's where uh, my, my grandfather got off the boat. And, uh, and then he had made his way over to Vancouver, but... Uh, uh, it's, it's, yeah, that whole history, especially the Chinese, because we weren't, the Chinese weren't really allowed to own or vote until the 60s. Right. When it came right, you know, yeah. So, so they think about it, you know, and now the Chinese seem to own everything. 
<laughs> well, and certainly uh, looking at uh, kind of uh, your beginnings and, uh, again, the time that you spent in BC and coming back to Victoria, I know you're coming back for this conference. So what are you going to be talking about or what are you planning to, to focus on when you speak? Well, I, 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 I'm a reactive speaker. I, I just answer questions more, more than anything. Because that that you know, then when you get my age, that's about it. It's your history. It's your history that everybody's interested in. You know, the the future is kind of uh, obvious, but uh, yeah. So I'll just mostly answer questions, and uh, you know, and and the first one is probably uh, where's cheap. <laughs> Well, I, I was curious about that. Is that is that? I mean, you've done so many things, but perhaps the best known would be Cheech and Chong and everything you did together. Do is that what people recognize you the most for, or ask you the most about still? Uh, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. When Cheech and I broke up, what was in '84? Uh, around there, about. I, oh, I, yeah. I waited till '90. I, I waited about five years. Uh, before I went on the st- on the road myself, you know, when I decided, you know, uh, <laughs> that him him and I weren't going to get back together again, so I went on the road doing stand up, and uh, and in fact, I went on the the day after Rodney King got beat up in mm. in L A. and uh, my first, in fact, my first bit ever was about Rodney King's, you know, mom watching the. Or, or no, the cops that beat up Rodney King, the the mother of the cops. You know, it doesn't matter what, why your son's on TV. It's just that you got to phone the neighbors and say, "Did you see my boy? He was the one that beaten him with." You know, and and uh, after I did the bit, uh, some guy from the audience goes, "Where's Cheech?" <laughs> <laughs> and that brought me back to reality. And- but I've been, uh, yeah. Oh, just I, I was curious about that too because when you guys broke up and then you did get back together, is it kind of water under the bridge or what happened? When we got back together, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, Cheech's uh, acting career sort of uh, went into a slump, you know, uh, and uh, and and then uh, my my son uh, Parrish, you know, he wanted, he was tr- been trying to get us back together because, you know, Cheech and Chong were pretty powerful. And, uh, so he, my, my son arranged a meeting for Cheech and I, and the meeting didn't go very well because, you know, we still had that, the differences. And, uh, but at the end, uh, I, I hadn't seen, I hadn't seen Cheech for years. And so I, I, I was going to email him, uh, you know, nice to see you. It's too bad. We can't work together. And my son, uh, Paris, intercepted my email and wrote one and said, oh, let's, I'm looking forward to working with you. <laughs> <laughs> and and so, so then my parent, my son, you know, who's my manager, he said, uh, Dad, you got a rehearsal with Cheech tomorrow. <laughs> I said, what? You know, I thought I ended it. And he said, no. I, and then he told me that he sent the email. And he's been managing us ever since. But it was it was a good email, and, and we got back together. And yeah, it was just water on the bridge. You know. Well, that's good to hear. Were you were you mad that your son meddled, or was it that had to happen? No, I, I mean, I, 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 it's hard to get. You know, my kids are so spoiled; it's hard to get mad at any of them. You know, because I had them. You know, they're 
they're, they, my, my kids have always meant, you know, everything to me. I don't know. You know, I spoiled the hell out of them. Mm. But, they're, they're, you know, I, I was great. I, I was yeah, he he knew what was good, and, you know. And then she and I and and my wife Shelby, we all we did perform for about twenty years after after we got back together, and we used to, we used to perform right up until Cheech uh, had a knee replacement and he couldn't get around much, and so we just packed it in, you know. And then we went went on to you know into the pot business then, right. I know you've been very open as well, talking about uh, cancer that you have dealt with and, and using cannabis, uh, medicinal, uh, recreational. Do people ask you a lot about that and about how, how cannabis has played a role when, when you've been dealing with cancer? Uh, well, yeah, especially the people with cancer. Hmm. You know, they're the ones that really get interested, you know, especially uh, like Charlie Sheen uh, you're, you're a couple of years ago, not at all. <laughs> I lost track of time, but when, uh, Charlie, when he finished Two and a Half Men, uh, he he got diagnosed with uh, prostate cancer, and that's what I had. And so, <clears throat> so Charlie and I had a little conversation about it. <clears throat> yeah, I've helped. I've helped. Well, and now I'm doing the CBD, uh, you know, and that, and they found out. Uh, CNN found out that cancer, uh, uh, you know, stopped. Uh, I mean, uh, cannabis stopped cancer. In a, in a nice, very nice way, you know. So you know, cannabis has always been a medicine. It's only you know the white guys when they, you know, the Puritans uh, took over and wanted everybody to quit doing everything, you know, alcohol, drugs, anything. And you know, they were the ones that kind of uh, took it to, to the other level. And and also, there's a lot of financial things, you know, that the hemp they wanted the hemp plant off the planet. And now it's coming back in such a big way that it's taken over again. So every, everything's good. Looking back at your career beyond Cheech and Chong, uh, you also spent time in prison in 2004 for shipping bongs in the U.S. You've been a big cannabis advocate. What goes through your mind now? You're coming to a conference in Victoria where people are going to be walking around and actually sampling cannabis. Yeah, well, you know, it's, it takes you know, the civilization a while to catch up with, uh, you know, the cutting edge of everything. And that, that's why we, uh, we're, we're here on earth to learn, you know, and you only learn from your mistakes. And if you can realize that, then you can realize that mistakes is just a learning uh, phase, you know, when you make a mistake and, uh, and, you know, and, uh, you know, hating people because of their color or, you know, all that stuff. It's just a learning, people learning how, how to live with each other. Because, that's, you know, that's basically, you know, we live in a very uh, physical universe. And, and that's the only way you learn. And that's why uh, we're here as humans, you know. Uh, we're, we're here in our joy, job as humans is to take care of our, you know, clean up your room. You know, you know that phrase that mothers always use. Mm-hmm. I, I, that's one of the thing I, I remember when you got tired of talking to your kids, or when you didn't want to talk to your kids. You, you told, "Go clean up your room," because <laughs> 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 what's happening when you start cleaning up your room, you start discovering things that you it neglected. You know, and you say, "Oh, I forgot about this." That's one of the ways I, I learned how to play a guitar. <laughs> because it was a go clean at your room and the guitar would be sitting there and 
and I'd sooner go play the guitar than clean up my room. <laughs> yeah, who wouldn't? So I kind of learned. I learned how to do that. But yeah, it's it's uh, you know our, the human. That's what I've been really working on lately. Is uh, you know the human uh, why we're here. You know, and when you find out find out why we're here, uh, like, like when you get my age, you know, and then you find out, then you also find out something else. Talk about it, <laughs> because everybody. Spoiler alert, you know. <laughs> so, so like most gurus, you know, when you evolve to a certain spot, you you develop a little twinkle in your eye and a little slight smile, because you know, you know the the all the secrets and but you can't tell them you can't tell people they have to learn them themselves you know so it, it's life is beautiful <laughs> you keep uh, saying uh, you know when you get to your age uh, I, I don't i mean you can if you if you want but I, i'm doing the math i'm trying to figure it out i would guess are, are you mid 80 mid 80s i'm 85 okay all right. So yeah, and 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 again, anybody that's followed your career knows that you've done so so many things. Uh, aside from your children, yeah. what's what's the thing that you're proudest of? Well, I I used to be brag about the fact that I got my wife on stage mm-hmm. doing stand up. You know, I mean, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, in fact, I still am hated by a lot of uh, road comedians. You know, the professional comedians. That I that I knew over the years, you know, Paul Reiser and people like that, you know, and they they actually hated me because I made life at their home very miserable <laughs> <laughs> because there's a, Tommy Tommy Chong put his wife in the show <laughs> <laughs> and no uh, Shelby like the Vancouver girl she was too beautiful and too talented and too hip to leave alone, you know, for me to go on the road alone. And so I, I kept begging her to come on the road with me, and then she didn't want to. And so I said, well, how about if I put you in the show? And then she could not refuse because she was uh, studying to be an actress at the time. And, and so it was an acting job for her, and, uh, and she turned out to be phenomenal. You know, she's still crazy, beautifully beautiful, and... Uh, and very hip and very funny. My whole success was because uh, I met her, you know. Hmm. I met her when she was uh, and still in high school. And we were just friends because I was married. And uh, and we just, as friends, she, I found out what a brilliant uh, lady this, you know, this girl was. And, uh, and so she helped me with all my businesses, with the band, with, every, with the career. She was the one that sort of uh, uh, encouraged me to keep, you know, to, to 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 quit music, to go into comedy, and you know, and what to do with the nightclubs and all, all that. You know, it was all I, I give her the credit, and and everybody else around me. You know, like my brother and Cheech, and uh, you know, everybody, all the supporting people. You know, that I had, I was lucky enough to be able to direct. You know the the you know the career, you know, and make decisions. You know, I had to make decisions. Like, and I and I got basically got fired from every job. You know, yeah. uh, and and so I that that's how I I I started keep I kept progressing. You know, 
for instance, we got fired from, I got fired from Motown, you know, because I was trying to get a green card. You know, Motown didn't understand, you know, the, the border situation. You know, I was Canadian, and so, uh, you know, it's right across the river from Motown, from Detroit. And and one of the, the band members, also Canadian, you know, he got honest with the Border Patrol and, and told them that, you know, we were working in Detroit. And so next thing you know, they had immigrations there kicking us out of the country. And so I had to get a green card, and Motown didn't, you know, the people at Motown, a lot of them didn't know what a green card was. And so I missed a gig, and so they fired me. And and I told them, I, you know, then Barry Gordy phoned up and said, oh, no, you're not fired, you know, we need you. And I said, no, I'm going to stay fired. I want to, I told Barry I want to become a Barry Gordy. I don't want to work for one. <laughs> and he, and he, he was real nice about it. And we're still, you know, uh, really... Uh, respectful of each other ever since that. So, so, you know, my life has been a series of uh, being fired and then going on to the next experiment, the next adventure. I call life adventures. I like it. And uh, Tommy, we could talk for hours, but unfortunately uh, we are almost right out of time. So we'll have to leave it there, but it was so great chatting with you. And I know so many people are looking forward to you coming to this conference and uh, you'll get a great welcome. I know when you're here, uh, when you're uh, here in BC in Victoria. Well, as long as you got the THC there, I don't give a shit who's there. (laughs) (laughs) I think there will be enough of that there. Tommy Chong, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, dear. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.